Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Paul Francisco. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's holy word. Praise God for such Christ's exalting worship. Thank you, worship team. Um, just very grateful that we can worship in spirit and truth through the reading of God's word, through the singing of God's word, through the praying of God's word, and by God's grace, through the hearing of his word explained, and he being honored and glorified through that. I have a little disclaimer as we go into our next few verses of Jude. I, I now know why. Um, I've heard many well-known pastors, ministers of the gospel who have preached in Jude, and they tend to uh, preach the, the, the nice text at the beginning and the end and leave out the middle. Um, this was a true labor in God's word. And I actually had to really double check a lot of what I was in my studying with uh, known Orthodox um, theologians and pastors who have actually preached this text. So with that said, by God's grace, you'll understand it today. Maybe some of what you hear, I, I'm gathering that probably most of you, or at least some of you, have not heard this text explained in this, this manner. Um, and I will admit to you, having first been introduced to this and the parallel text that, um, that we'll be looking at, I, I was pretty shocked and I was like, is that even biblical? But I, I assure you, um, um, it is orthodox, and I assure you that um, let's not get sidetracked by the main thing of what it's actually trying to tell to us. So with that said, it's almost impossible to watch anything on TV or in movies without the prevailing sins of our day. Everything from commercials to reality TV, we see the promotion of sexual perversion and immorality with a blatant disregard for the things of God. Unbelief and sin are not only acceptable, but is celebrated in our time. With each passing day, it seems our culture moves forward and further away from God, the God revealed in the Bible. And I want to propose to you this morning, beloved, through this text, that by learning from those who have rejected the Lord, Christians must continually run to and cling to the mercy of God available in Christ Jesus. This is God's word for God's people this morning. So to give you a little context of where we're at, Jude has given his attention through his greeting to where, to helping us understand who we are in Christ. 
And then as we looked at last week, he has just sounded the alarm, calling on believers to contend for the faith. Now Jude turns to three examples of sin of the past. Unbelief, rebellion, and immorality, pleading with his hearers to remember three truths that you should never forget. First, remember the danger of unbelief. Secondly, remember the dishonor of rebellion. And thirdly, remember the destiny of the immoral. So remember the danger of unbelief, remember the dishonor of rebellion, and remember the destiny of the immoral. Unbelief runs across throughout the land and within the congregation of God's people even. Our culture has turned its back in God and his word. And there is a battle with unbelief that has been crept, even has even crept into the church, as Jude warns us. And verses five through seven flows directly from Jude's warning in verse four, to contend for the faith. And the next 11 verses, we see judgment opens and closes. There is judgment. False teachers were marked out by God for condemnation, as we saw in verse four. And their sins are familiar with three well-known events from the past. Old Testament history points us towards God's condemnation here. And so what you are gonna see in these three points is three Old Testament examples of history where God condemns. First of all, you're gonna see condemnation of Israel for their unbelief. Secondly, you're gonna see condemnation of fallen angels for their rebellion. And thirdly, you're gonna see condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah for their immorality. So, three Old Testament examples of condemnation. Condemnation for Israel and their unbelief, condemnation for fallen angels for their rebellion, and condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah for immorality. So these could be like subpoints of the main points. Remember the danger of unbelief, rebellion, and the destiny of immorality. So the text begins with, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Jude begins with Israel here in verse five. Because they were God's chosen people. And their unbelief is at the heart of all sin. Jude starts with, now I want to remind you. I want to remind you. Remember these things. Although you came to know or you knew, it connects with the idea in verse three that this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This was not new to them, just as the gospel was not new to them. However, in their fallen human 
form in our human sinfulness, we are prone to forget and wander. It's just like the well-known hymn we sing in Come Thou Fount. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We can neglect the lessons and truths from the past. Jude begins his first of seven Old Testament references, and to borrow from the theologian Daniel Aiken, he says, God saw the plight of the chosen people, and he saved, delivered, or rescued them out of Egypt. He sent plagues on Egypt, parted the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, and provided manna, quail, and water. He was their glory cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. So Israel had an amazing past, a marvelous legacy, and the book of Exodus is a witness to God's grace and salvation. I want you to think back with me on a sermon that I actually preached previously on Psalm 95 from the psalmist in verses 8 through 11. So if you do want to look in your own Bible, Psalm 95, I'm just going to read verses 8 through 11. The psalmist says these words, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, Christian, warnings exist for a reason. If you see a sign with the words danger, that should tell us something. And when we ignore these signs in our lives, we often will face consequences of our actions. How much more should we be heeding the word of God? Do not harden your hearts. What should this tell us? You see, hardness of heart is a result of rebellious sin. We are simply not trusting God. We are essentially saying, I got this, God. I believe God, but this is different. I have X. This is true for us today. How often do we rebel against God by thinking we are in control? We go to church on Sundays, but when it comes to our jobs, money, success, family decisions, you fill in the blank, we say, I got this, God. When things go wrong, it's, it's not because of us, right? Um, we pass the blame. We don't really believe that God is going to carry us through our current circumstances. Perhaps you might say, I never killed anyone and I'm basically a good person, right? Beloved, hardness of heart is equated to unbelief. This was true for Israel. Although they had seen God's deliverance from Egypt, they had witnessed God's great rescue by the parting of the Red Sea, and they had experienced all the miracles of God in the wilderness, yet they grumbled time and time again. 
This generation had witnessed time and time again God's provision, his miracles, his grace, God's provision, and, he st and they still found room to complain. Did you know that complaining, grumbling is sin? This is what Philippians 2.13 tells us. Do all things well without disputing, quarreling or disputing, okay, fighting, without grumbling, complaining, whining, right? This is what God says, and this is his truth, and this is a sin, and the Lord gives them what they want, and they are still discontent. Isn't this true of us? The issue for Israel and for us is this. Are you trusting God today? Are you trusting him right now? It doesn't matter what your parents believe or that you were raised in the church or your good church members that tithe or that you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, signed a card, or even were baptized. Not once does the word tell us to look back to a past experience for our security. We are to remember that God is the one who saves. And remember the danger of unbelief. Are you believing today, right now, when the rubber meets the road and your life is crumbling, everything around you, what do you believe? Take this reminder of Israel's past to heart, saints. Jude says later or afterward, the Lord destroyed. In other words, he says he wiped them out, those who were unbelief. That's right there in the text. You see that? And I find it very interesting that Jude attributes Jesus as the one. He doesn't just say God or the Lord. He doesn't say Yahweh, but he attributes Jesus to his full deity. He is fully God. He was in control. He was eternal. He was the God of the past and the God of the present. The same Jesus who saved them is the same Jesus who destroys them due to unbelief. Now, Jude clearly has in mind Numbers chapter 14, when the spies, 12 spies returned from their reconnaissance mission into the promised land. The majority of them, the 10 said, we can't do this. They are giants and we are just little grasshoppers. But the mi minority report of the two, do you remember those two? Joshua and Caleb said, no problem. After all, grasshoppers plus God can beat any giants, right? But the people of Israel, although they had seen God at work, they did not believe. What was the result of their disbelief? The result was that every person 20 years of age and older died. They perished. They never saw the promised man. All of them, not once survived to see the promised land, the promise of God, except for Joshua and Caleb. They had missed God's best for them. 
forgetting God's goodness and grace. They dug their graves in the wilderness within sight of the land. God had did it before, but they could not trust him this time. Far too many times in the church today, we say, God saved me from the past, and he'll take me to heaven in the future. But right now, I'm not sure. I just have too many issues. I need to get my finances straight. I have too much work to do. I need to get my house in order. Have you ever heard that? People don't want to come to church because they have to get right. What are you going to get right? You've been messing up for all your whole life. <laughs> get in the church and let God get you right. Unbelief destroyed the Hebrew people. And unbelief in God's providence and goodness describes the apostates in which Jude is speaking about. And this is why we are told to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Let me ask you this. I pray and hope that you're in disciple relationships in some way or other with our small body where we love on each other, spend time to each other, fellowship with one another. How would you help someone to examine themselves? Do you point to scripture and have them test their thoughts against his word? Or are you just quick to rebuke them? Do you cast judgment but have a thorn in your own eye? Do you perhaps compare yourself to them and think that you're better? Can we turn them to the, the word for eternal security and warnings? Some of us need to exercise a little bit more grace and some of us need to be rebuked. And that's okay. But God is gracious with us, slow to anger. Today, if you hear your, his voice, do not harden your heart. Remember the danger of unbelief. Belief and rejoice in the joy of his salvation. Think about it. When you were first saved, how you just felt the burden lift from your hearts. There was a joy about you, a pep in your step, right? You just were filled with such awe and wonder that God could save you. Do not lose your first love. Remember and believe. If God could get you out of the mess that you were in before, he could certainly keep you. And remember the dishonor of the rebellion. Verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We must remember the condemnation reserved for rebellion. The evidence is clear. Our culture in our nation has turned away from God in his word. They have shunned his standards and mocked his character. The culture is where it is today in part because the church is where it is. 
Rebellion runs rampant in our nation, and sadly, the church's lack of pursuit of holiness is evident as well. So we must ask the question, what does God think of our current situation? Jude uses this example of fallen angels and the rebellion. I admit to you, Jude, verse 6 is one of the most difficult passages, verses in the Bible to interpret. Who is Jude talking about? Who was Peter talking about in the parallel text in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4? I'm going to give you three views that have been set forth by others within the faith. And then I'm going to explain to you what I think. And I'm convinced, at least uh, from Scripture, is the correct interpretation of this. Yet, I don't want us to lose sight. First, uh, this could have been unknown fall of angels not recorded in Scripture. That's, that's a possibility, right? Secondly, there is the original fall of Satan that is typified in uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, which is very plausible. And then thirdly, the episode of Genesis 6 where fallen angels had sexual relations and cohabited with women and produced an evil race of men who brought God's judgment of the world through the flood. Now, the first of these is highly unlikely as Scripture interprets Scripture. And we see no other account of this. And so why would God put something in here of an account that he has nothing else to for us to understand and reference. So I, I, I reject that view. The second view is very plausible. And I would say had verse seven not been there, I would likely lean to this position. However, if, if you've studied Genesis chapter six extensively in second Peter chapter two, verse four at any length, I think this position is the most convincing. When I, when I first heard about this understanding from Genesis 6, I must admit to you, I was pretty shocked. I couldn't even believe that was true. Uh, why had no one ever told me about this? Uh, and is, is, even, is, is this even an orthodox view, I thought to myself. Uh, as I dug and, and, and studied, and even now, you know, you would uh, be probably more assured to know that people like John MacArthur, uh, seminary graduates from uh, the seminar I went to in Master's Academy, a Gospel Coalition, Nine Marks, um, most of all hold this position. But I remember uh, I was at a, um, a expository summit. It was a a preaching conference at uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and Alistair Begg was preaching, and, and, and he just conveniently goes, all this stuff that I'm not gonna talk about, you're gonna have to save for another day for your pastor, and, and then skipped over this. And, and I was like, well, I knew why now, because I was going, ooh, this is loaded. But nevertheless, Given that Genesis 6 is not our text today, I'm going to say this. I cannot exhaust the teaching or explanation of this view. However, I'm going to read for you Genesis chapter 6 for, for you and give you some reasons from a sound theologian on why I believe this is true. But I don't want us to be sidetracked from what the main thing is talking about. 
So if you have Genesis chapter six, and I, I suggest you go ahead and just turn there for your own eyes and knowing that this is God's word and not Paul Francisco just speaking and saying what I'm saying. And beginning with verse one, you see this, it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and I think that's a key understanding, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into daughters of man, and that language all through the Old Testament is of sexual language, to daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of all, the men of the renown. God was so displeased with the sin of these fallen angels and what the world had become amongst the evil and wickedness that he decided to wipe out the world and start over again. Look, look with me again here, beginning with verse five. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God looked at his own creation and he had spies for the wickedness and evil of his own creation. And this is why if we read on to the story of Noah, why God destroyed the earth through the great flood and started over again. If you read Jewish traditions, scholars, literary units, and sound Old Testament scholars, you will find that this is the overwhelming view of the Jewish tradition. Sons of God in the Old Testament as you saw it twice here mentioned in Genesis chapter six, is consistently referred to as angelic beings. When angels appear in scripture, they always appear in the male gender and they can function like human persons. They speak, they walk, they talk, right? Matthew chapter 22 verse 30 in Jesus' own words, he doesn't say angels don't have sexuality, but that they don't marry. Furthermore, Jesus himself speaks specifically of angels in heaven. Fifth, the sons of God in Genesis 6 came to earth as fallen angels or demons. We know of the account of the fall of angels from heaven, right? And the word likewise in verse 7, and this is why it leads me to conclude to where I have, likewise in verse 7 links together both sexual immorality and the reference to just as Sodom and Gomorrah, like and as, if you know your English, are similes, right? Comparisons. And strong reasons for understanding verse 6 properly. This also best explains why some demons, as you see in verse 7, 
Uh, some are free, but the, here, the terrible nature of their sin brought a more severe judgment on these fallen angels. Although I believe the interpretation of this text is highly significant, we must not lose sight of the text's plain meaning, nor its terms of application. And this is what I want you to really hear. So if, if all that's just confusing and crazy and shocking to you, just forget all that because that's not the main thing, what I believe that you need to take away from this. These fallen angels rejected at least two principles for life that we should learn to respect. These two principles you should, you could write this down. Accept God's plan for your life. And secondly, respect God's power over you. These angels were not satisfied with God's plan and design for them. They believed they knew better than God. Their sin of pride got in the way of God's best. They did not, as you see there in the text, they did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. Their place and position in God's design was not enough for them. They wanted more. This sounds like many who claim to be ministers of the gospel today. Through self-deception, men like these angels rationalize their lust for position, power, prestige, and possessions. They have an inflated self-worth and an importance. They cannot trust God and rest in his plan. These are men who distort biblical principles and preach about things like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They stir up controversies. They look and act friendly, but they are enemies dedicated to destruction, as we saw in verse 3. They, these foes mean to deceive and destroy, presenting themselves as harmless, but waiting for an opportunity to prey on the weaker members of the body seeking to serve their own agenda and teach false doctrines. They are the conspiracy theorists in the church, looking for others to follow them. And we are told to have nothing to do with them. We must respect God's power over us. Isn't this true for us, right? Do we trust God's plan and design for our lives as his best? Think about it. Whatever you're doing in life, whether you're a college student, a professional, blue-collar worker, retired, a mother, whatever it is, do you trust that God's plan and design for your life is his best? Or do you find yourself in constant discontentment with what you have been called to do? You see, beloved, if God gave us everything we think we want, life would be a big mess, right? How easy it is for us to forget God's goodness and faithfulness. What about the joy of our salvation? I mean, think about it. How, excite, how exciting that would be that every day we woke up, thank you, God, I'm alive. Praise God. I mean, we should act that way, but man, I don't know about you, but I wake up like, oh, Lord, I'm still alive. I mean, I hurt. We remember God's goodness, yet when things go wrong, we complain. We're thankful for a while, and then we doubt. We say we believe, but then we battle unbelief. 
our comfort, our ease, and pursuit of happiness is filled with the things of this world. And we do not trust the Lord. Like what is recorded in James, we can look into a mirror and then quickly vanish. Not content with heaven, these angels get hell instead. I want you to think about this. Think about what the rebellion costs these fallen angels. They give up heaven, their position, proper dwelling, and they get hell instead. They give up being servants of God and they become slaves of Satan. They give up the light and they get darkness. They give up freedom and they find themselves in chains. They give, give up joy in God's presence and receive condemnation. They give up an awesome privilege and get a horrifying punishment. They gave up great honor and they receive incredible disgrace. I pray, saints of GBF, that this not be us, O oh Lord, the people of the promise. And because of God's gracious revelation in Christ Jesus through his spirit-inspired scriptures, our responsibility is likewise great. God is God and we are not. And we must accept his plan for and power over our lives. As the demonic prisoners show, the Lord will receive his due respect one way or other. Are you content with and confident that God knows what he's doing in your life? I mean, with your jobs, with where you live, with your money, what he says about marriage, what he exhorts you to be about as parents, the ailments he allows in your life, sicknesses, frailties. Now, I think I've shared this, at least with some of you, there's not a day of my life that I don't wake up with pain. I get worked on every week there are some of you who've seen me in the doctor's office here. I deal with mental pain. I deal with physical pain. And whole, how easy it is for me to, to want to complain or wish God would take it away. But what I have learned to embrace that that God reminds me through the pain that I wake up with every day even though it affects me in everyday life, causes me to go to a whole regiment just in the morning just so I can function, it reminds me, first of all, that God preserved me. I shouldn't even be alive today. My life should have been taken several times from me, but he allows me to go on, and the pain reminds me that his grace is sufficient today. So are you content to know that God knows what he's doing in your life? Or is your life gripped by rebellion? 
If you suspect what God has for you, is it not, and you know it's not what you want, do you turn away? We must remember what rebellion gets us. It's a one-way ticket to hell and eternal damnation. When Christ returns in judgment, every knee will bow in heaven on earth. And this is why the gospel is good news. Rebels who don't get what they deserve by believing and trusting Christ, we can receive the gift of faith by grace alone in Christ alone. So remember the dishonor of rebellion and accept God's plan for your life. Respect his power over your life. For God both condemns rebellion and he saves sinners from rebellion. And this brings us to our last point. Remember the destiny of the immoral. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Christian, no story impacted the people of God like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is referenced one way or another more than 20 times in the Bible. The devastation of these cities was so horrific, they serve as a perpetual reminder of God's judgment and condemnation of sin, especially sexual sin. They were known for their pride and disregard for the poor, their arrogance, injustice, and the bigotry, but most of all, for their sexual perversion. Finally, God said, enough! And Genesis 19 records the fatal judgment of sulfur fire raining down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. And Jude is specific in his brief analysis in our text today. Sodom and Gomorrah acted in a manner similar to the fallen angels in verse 6. They committed sexual immorality and went after the Greek word for here, strange flesh, meaning the flesh of other men. Their sin was of homosexuality. The Bible is clear in its treatment of homosexuality as sin. It is made plain and clear throughout Scripture. Probably none is clearer than Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. I'll read that for you. You can turn there, Romans chapter 1. And it says this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile, enemies in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. In fact, because of their 
sins of their flesh, God gave them up and over to their own demise of dishonorable passions. Verse 26 of Romans chapter one. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing, committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. But this text is not just for those who are involved in homosexuality. Secondly, the Bible is very clear about that any sexual relation, either heterosexual or homosexual, outside the marriage covenant between one man and one woman is sin. Jesus himself reiterates God's words. He says the two become one flesh. The two become one. However, those enslaved to sexual sin need to be loved, including those who identify with the LGBT community. We ought not to hate or bash them as they are persons made in an image and likeness of God. Yes, rampant sexual sin is there, but it's not the worst sin ever committed, nor is it unforgivable. It's just one of the most prevalent and clear sins evidenced in society. A sin that blatantly rejects God's truth and has been given over its own judgment. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah served as a constant reminder to us that we should remember the destiny of the immoral. And sexual perversion can consume you. And eternal punishment can claim you. Matthew 25 verses 41, Jesus speaks these words. It tells us that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 6 backs this up. However, verse 7 confirms that unbelieving, rebellious, and immoral people will also be there. I'm convinced that there are plenty of non-drinking, non-smoking virgins in hell. Hell is not just a bad concept. It is real, beloved. It is in an eternity separated from God. It's a place of suffering and sadness and separation. Immorality destroys and hell awaits. It also points us to the necessity of the gospel. The blood-stained cross. The word for hell in the Greek that Jesus uses here is Gehenna. It's used 12 times in scripture. It was a place used by pagans for child sacrifice, a place of burning flesh. In New Testament times, it was a horrible trash dump lit on blazing fire, hotter and hotter and hotter, and the stench of its burning was always going. 11 times in Jesus' own lips, he says this word, Gehenna. So terrible is its reality that Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 Verses 27 through 30 said that it would be better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye and one hand rather than the whole body to be cast into hell. Listen to his words. Have you heard that what it was said that you, not, you should not commit adultery? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Brothers and sisters, 
Don't think that sexual immorality and perversion is just not homosexuality or sleeping with someone who's not your wife or your husband. It also can happen in your heart and mind. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, tear it out, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Eternity in hell, Christian, is forever. Friend, it doesn't get any worse than this. And the unbelieving, rebellious, and immoral will unfortunately find their destiny in this place. But let me end with a word of encouragement for you. Yes, God will condemn unbelievers, the rebellious, and the immoral. But he will also forgive them gladly if they're washed in the cleansing, cleansing blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is good news. And this is God's word for God's people this morning. So let us remember these three truths today and live in eternal rest. Remember the danger of unbelief, the danger or the dishonor of rebellion, and the destiny of the immoral. Christian, God is the one who saves through belief in Christ. It is a gift of grace and love towards you. Ask Christ to guard your heart against ungodliness and unbelief. Ask God to help you battle unbelief. Friends, God's mercy and grace is extended to all through Jesus Christ. The Lord seeks to be infinite in his mercy and grace towards all, but there is a judgment that will come to those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. Anyone who trusts in Jesus will receive God's gift of grace known as faith. It is a gift. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And as we conclude from his own letter, Jude in his doxology, he records these so encouraging words for our soul. And he tells us, now to him who is able. Who is able? Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Praise God for his word. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. May you help our hearts to see the truths and remember these things. In Christ's name we do pray, amen. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. 
We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 9.50 a.m. for Connections Sunday School and from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. for our worship service. We're located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.